Hello, and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Today, I'm joined by guest Marco Campana to talk about immigration. Marco, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. For listeners who are hearing you for the first time, can you share a bit about who you are and what you do, please? Sure. So I am a freelance, uh, I guess, communications consultant. I work with immigrant and refugee serving organizations in Canada, focused really on um, helping them harness technology in their service delivery and, uh, and, and really sort of looking at digital transformation and uh, figuring out how they can use technology to connect with their clients and provide direct services to them through uh, a hybrid approach, I guess is what we would be calling it now, the, the idea of some in person, some online, and being able to kind of move between those two channels um, with their clients based on the client's preference. And I'm curious to know how you got started working in this space. Yeah, great question. I'm sort of, a, I'm very much what they call an accidental techie. Um, I would say that, uh, I mean, I come I come out with a political science degree and I worked as a, and a career practitioner certificate uh, professionally. Um, and uh, I got exposed to um, technology, the internet very early in my career because I had a really free uh, sort of forward thinking executive director who got us connected to the internet way back in, you know, screaming modem days, Windows 3.1 kind of thing. And so I start, I've always seen it as a, as a tool in our work. Um, and then uh, in the early 2000s, I was working on the settlement.org website, which is a site uh, providing information around settlement for newcomers to Ontario specifically. And then I kind of flipped over to the um, practitioner side where I was helping people understand how they could use technology in their work uh, when I worked at OCASI, the Ontario Council of Agencies Serving Immigrants. And so I always approached it as a tool, not as a techie, as saying like, listen, this, these, these technology tools exist. Newcomers are using them. We've always been able to show research that newcomers are, are more digitally literate um, and sort of digital digitally forward thinking in a lot of cases. Obviously, there's also digital divide issues, but certainly they were more digitally literate than, than agencies. And so there were missed opportunities in how we reached out and served to newcomers. So I started kind of proselytizing, if you will, technology and talking about it, not as a panacea, but as a, as a tool, as another tool in your tool belt. Like technology is not going to solve all your problems. But we, you know, the more we use technology with people who want to use it, um, the more scale we could have, the more scope we could be um, um, making in our work. And we could really kind of help people who, um, who might not want or have time or have family situations or work situations in order to come into bricks and service kind of um, uh, organizations to get their, their, uh, their help. And so that sort of just kind of for the last 15 or 20 years has been part of my work. And then um, and then I sort of moved into consulting about nine years ago, where I'm doing essentially uh, similar work to what I was doing when I was with OCASI and other agencies, but uh, it was a bit too soon back then. Not a lot of agencies, you know, wanted to, to think about technology. So, um, so now people, especially during the pandemic, have realized that digital is a tool that can be used and that a lot of newcomers, in fact, prefer um, uh, to be served using technology. So we're, we're really kind of on the cusp of, of a hybrid service delivery model. And and, uh, and I've been lucky enough to be part of that for many years. So so I continue to kind of be in that space now. Screaming modem. Man, that brings me back. It's a great <laughs> analogy. I never actually I actually used those words before, but it definitely brings me back to those those days. If you yeah. heard it, you remember it. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. it it's, a, it's a nostalgic, I think, sound now at this point for me. It is, yeah. But I also I share your your vision of, you know, tools um, are a fantastic mechanism to 
help. Like any tool, I mean, it's designed to serve a purpose and it can only serve you better. Like I only see, want to see the positive side of things, at least in that, you know, with the right tools, you can accomplish many more things than you could without the tools. Right? Absolutely. Cutting yeah. a tree down with your bare hands is kind of difficult, but with the right tool, it can be very easily done. That's right. Yeah, and I think a lot of it kind of stems back to in our in, in social services and, and human service sectors is really kind of the roots of the work. When I was brought into the sector, we did a lot of learning and training about popular education techniques where you start with the knowledge in the room. You start with the perspective and the knowledge that the people you're working with have. And when it comes to technology, we kind of sort of seem to forget that. So we're like, oh, I should be on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And um, we forget to go to our clients, in this case, newcomers, and say, well, how do you want to receive information from us? How, what are the tools that you're using? And how do you want to communicate? What are your preferences um, with us? And so I think that that's a big part of, you know, demystifying technology as well by calling it a tool and then saying, you don't have to figure it out on your own. You talk to the people you're serving in the same way you would if you recognize, you know, a number of moms from a certain ethnic group needed support, you'd start a mom's group kind of thing because you have worked with them and you understand them. And so I think we sort of forget all of those lessons when we go online, when we think of technology, we forget to talk to the people who we're going to use it with. I sometimes make the mistake of forgetting because my world is a lot about tech. Sometimes I forget about certain industries and, and areas that really are, or it used to be, let's say, afraid of tech. Um, you know, lawyers, I can think of one thing, doctors in medicine. In in your opinion, how is the immigration side of things? I mean, I imagine COVID has definitely accelerated, like every other industry, certain tools and technologies and whatnot. But so do you find like a lot of your part of what you do is educating them on why they should be using it before you actually are able to like sell them the idea? Absolutely. And and I mean, there has always been sort of traditionally a lot of pushback from agencies. I like to joke that up until the pandemic, I had the same sort of, you know, five or 10 organizational examples that I would use in all my presentations of interesting and innovative technology use. And now that's expanded exponentially because the pandemic made everybody go digital and learn the lessons of what was good and, and negative and challenging and all of those sort of the full range of possibilities with technology. And so we are all in a place now where the people who kind of dug in their heels have realized technology definitely has a place, right? And the conversation has shifted now, not to should we be using technology, but how can we use it responsibly? How can we use it ethically? How can we use it in a, you know, in a client-centric way? Um, so, so I think um, we have a lot of catching up to do in some ways with, with some sectors, but the nice thing is that, you know, there's a lot we can learn from those people, but for sure the sector has had, um, challenges around just understanding the possibilities of technology until we were kind of forced to use it. And then if we were to give some examples of, of what kind of tools, do you have like certain systems, platforms, tools that you normally find work or work best for immigration purposes? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really wide range. So, um, you know, there's the, the the idea. So in the immigration realm, I work in, in what we call the settlement, right? So the settlement of newcomers. And there's the, the pre-arrival and then there's the post-arrival um, kind of uh, services. So pre-arrival has always had a technology component because you're serving people overseas. And some of that is in person. There's examples where people are serving in uh, in person, but uh, most of that is being done by technology. So, so you know, you've had pre-arrival services around for about at least 10 years who are, you know, using service portals. It could be, for example, um, Salesforce community, or it could be, you know, uh, something that's been built from scratch or, you know, even like a BuddyPress or a WordPress kind of installation. Um, but then they're using things like WhatsApp, email, texting, Viber, 
Telegram, WeChat, they're using, they were quick adopters of using the technologies that their clients were using for communication back and forth. And then in the post-arrival, what we've always been doing is, is we, we formally call it a hybrid service model now, but people were always using technology with their clients, even if they didn't think about it, right? So for example, you might do an intake and then you see the client face-to-face and then you'll email them some materials based on that conversation, resources, links, you know, a jo- an employment uh, resume template or something like that. And um, and people don't think about that as actually using technology because email is so banal. It's so, so you know, we use it every day. But that is an example where you're using technology. And then people started to see that, okay, well, my client can't come in today. So maybe we'll have a, we could have a phone call. We could have a web chat, you know, we could be on a video together. And, and so you started to see, you know, people starting to use Skype and go to meeting and things like that. And now, of course, Zoom is, uh, is Zoom and Teams are kind of the, the, the two standards when you, when you see in, in our sector. So it comes from in the, from all the way from kind of like individual technologies. Right. So I'll, I'll use WhatsApp or I'll text my client and then I'll I'll have a video conference with them using Zoom. I'll email them some some uh, some websites. Um, you know, we'll we'll kind of go from there. And now what we have is, you know, agencies who are creating apps, smartphone apps. We've got, you know, full service portals behind the password where everything is done on the portal instead of in piecemeal technologies. Um, and uh, and and even the, you know, the uh, the evolution of chatbots and um, and more sort of automatic kinds of technology. So it's really been shifting over time, as well as um, things like from the administrative side, the creation and the use of CRMs and, and client portals to re- to not only just sort of track what clients are doing, but also really, you know, get some intelligence out of them and figure out from a data perspective, what's the impact and outcome of our services? What are the places, where are the places we're not serving people and things like that? So it's really kind of become a wide range of technologies, um, and uh, and and more and more we're seeing um, agencies predominantly using it in that more piecemeal approach. But we do have examples of agencies who have invested more in technology and have more of those kind of client portals. So, for example, I believe Access Employment in Toronto, which is an employment um, service provider that works not only with newcomers but with a lot of newcomers, they shifted to. Um, to a digital intake process. So even if you go into their office, um, you'll you'll tap away on a tablet or on a computer and create and do your own high-level intake. And I mean, it, 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 I think it's it's helped you know resolve issues like typos in people's names and things like that because the person is putting it in themselves. But what was interesting is that automatically, based on some of the things you'll do in your intake, like identifying perhaps the sector you work in, the type of occupation you have, it auto-enrolls people into some of their online learning. So the system talks to like a learning management system and says, okay, you've been enrolled in our, you know, 30-minute um, overview of job search, 30-minute overview of resume writing, you know, introduction for job search for accountants, if that's what their background is, for example. And so immediately those people, even before they start to see a, a counselor or a worker, are starting to receive services, right? So it's that 24-7. And then they can interact with the, their service provider in person, online, and, and meander back and forth between those sort of channels based on their life situation or their preferences that day for that meeting, for example. So we've seen quite, you know, versus a lot of organizations are still um, doing more manual intake. And then after that, maybe uh, I'll WhatsApp you or I'll add you to my WhatsApp broadcast list or we'll we'll have a Zoom meeting. You can come in person. So what we're seeing is that, the you know, we're seeing some organizations evolve into service platforms and others who are just using the tools 
um, because they don't have the infrastructure or the, the the funding or the investment to create portals and platforms. But they're still using those tools in a similar way. That's quite a few tools. You said Skype. It's cute. I, I'm curious to know <laughs> whatever happened to Skype. You know, it was in the leader at one point, and now it's gone. Zoom Teams has taken over. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It is. It's just. I'm, it's just one of the fascinating parts about being in technology and seeing the evolution of how certain technologies evolve and die or get repurposed, and then new ones come up and you know bigger, better, stronger, faster that just take over for X, Y, Z reason. I think sometimes that creates overwhelm as well for people. Is oh, I've got to learn yet another tool, or mm. I switch for certain reasons. So Skype, for example, I know of some organizations that switched from Skype because when Microsoft bought Skype. They changed some of the terms and conditions. It went from, you know, full video encryption to no more encryption, and they were using it for service interactions. So they they paying attention to the terms and conditions, and then they switched to another video um, to technology. You know, Zoom almost had that happen to them early in the pandemic when they were making claims about encryption, but then people, researchers discovered they weren't. But what they did is they pivoted really quickly. They said, we were committed to that. And within 90 days, they were, they were you know, full end-to-end -end encryption. So you also start to see, you know, the, the, the up-and-comers are more nimble, more responsive to clients, for example, which is also really interesting. And I think that um, that, that happened, for example, to Microsoft is that it became part of the behemoth in some ways. And probably the technology has been incorporated into Teams. Um, and so instead of Skype, now you have Teams. But it's, uh, it, it, that, that whole sort of constant change can be really overwhelming for people as well. When they, you know, I've, I've got a tool, the tool works well, now I have to change it. That has a huge impact sometimes on their whole, their whole service delivery, the competencies, the training, the, the confidence that someone might have in those systems. It can, it can really upend things. I, I totally agree. It's one of the biggest challenges, <clears throat> you know, if moving from a, one CRM, for example, to another, or even within the CRM, you know, adding new functionality, they're used to doing things one way and now they have to do it differently. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely falls into that change management um, perspective. And I also wanted to make a comment about that digital intake form. I, I actually have some experience with that more recently when I took my niece and nephew go-karting. And at the front desk, the first step was, please self-register on this kiosk. Yeah. And you know, one of these examples, like you mentioned, where I'm able to prevent data entry errors. So I make sure that my email address, my name is correct or not, because maybe I don't want to give them my email address. Exactly. <laughs> in that context. But at least the idea of collecting more information and then you know the idea of auto-subscribing them to a course or to a newsletter, I mean, that to me makes total sense. And I imagine that probably the kind of intake form will probably grow uh, as time goes on. I think so. And I'm, I hope so, because it's a model that makes sense, right? It's, uh, it's you know, you, it's also something that kind of resonates with people's expectations of, of digital types of services. As soon as I subscribe to something, I want to use it immediately. And that's not going to be different when they're accessing a social service necessarily where, you know, okay, I've done the intake, I've done, I've given you my information, now get me started, right? And and so there's a lot of really low-hanging fruit that, you know, that people can be kind of subscribed to. So they feel like they're receiving service immediately, even before they interact with the person through that organization. And so I think that, you know, there's a, there's a combination there, again, of one, you know, once again, of understanding the person accessing your service and what their digital expectations might be. And either you have to manage those upfront or you have to uh, provide for them, right? So it's either letting them know, okay, this will take, five, you know, 24 to 48 hours, it'll be reviewed and then you'll be into the system or poof, you know, throw them into the system right away and give them something to start using that they find useful. 
I imagine the UX of these types types of forms are very important as well. You have to consider age. Maybe some people who are not very tech savvy might not be used to a touch screen, you know, as much as you and I might be. Accessibility, you know, visibility, color, um, um, color blindness. So I imagine that you know whoever creates these forms have to take all of this in consideration that they didn't have to worry about in the past. For sure, and language can be. I mean, that's the thing about technologies. You can have multilingual forms, you know, much more, perhaps more easily, um, and giving people those options. And what's interesting, for example, um, is that some of these agencies you have to be nimble based on your client group. So I've heard, for example, that uh, at Access, um, the the influx of of Afghans and Ukrainians, um, there was a certain there were certain digital literacy and language preferences and challenges. So they actually are doing more in person intake now. Now the person who's doing the intake is still sitting at that computer and doing it, but it's human facilitated. So there's always that notion of understanding your clients and when the technology is a barrier, how do you shift away from, from it so that the person doesn't feel dissuaded to access your service, right? They still want to, they still want to come and get help, but maybe that screen is a barrier. Um, and that's always going to be the case, I think, for, for a certain percentage of the population, either by choice or simply by, by challenge. But I think because it was a two large populations that they started to see this trend in, they uh, they modified their approach. They were flexible, and that there's there's something that's constantly going to be part of that moving forward. The flexibility of our models, the flexibility of how we use technology, and that is both really important, but it also can be you know just like changing from Skype to to Zoom, a challenge for frontline workers and for organizations to know well when do we when do we offer flexibility, when do we be more nimble, for example, in our in our approach. So I imagine that because some of these agencies are playing some kind of catch up that they probably skip certain technologies in the interim. Like, you know, a certain period of time, people were using various other kinds of communication channels like ICQ. I don't know if people know that one, but that's an older one, an earlier version of uh, WhatsApp, let's call it. They were able to cert- you know, skip certain interim processes and interim technologies and be able to get to the more modern stuff. Like um, a really simple and easy example would be, uh, you know, I'm currently in Europe. And in Poland, for example, their, their mobile infrastructure is significantly significantly better than Canada and the U.S. because they didn't have to, they didn't really build telephone lines, the hardwired telephone lines. They kind of skipped that step and went straight to mobile. So mobile is very cheap, it's, it's, it's accessible, it's very quick. So I imagine in the same kind of context, or maybe you can tell me, you know, some of these immigration type of agencies were able to benefit from jumping straight to the, the shiny new toy that works better than the, uh, the technologies they had to work with in the past. I think so. I think, and there's a, there's a dual edge to that. I think part of, um, with people coming from source countries like Poland were, and again, most countries around the world, I think uh, mobile is more accessible and cheaper than in, than in Canada. So there's been, a, there's a bit of a sticker shock when they get here and they see how much it costs and how little you get sometimes in terms of data and stuff from uh, a mobile uh, a mobile contract um but they still do it because it's so valuable and it's what they've become used to exactly. on the other side absolutely one of the one of the this, the the pitch for technology has become i think in a lot of ways easier and i think it's why people were able to during the pandemic pivot so quickly um, to technology because it's evolved and, you know, through for all of its issues with user experience and interfaces and stuff, it is miles ahead of where it was, say, 10 years ago, right? When I, you would go into an office and talk about how do you get set up on Skype or how do you get set up on, you know, ICQ or, or whatever the, the technology of the day might have been, it's so much easier now because, you know, it's an app on your phone and it's sort of, you know, it's a, it's a, 
easy to use interface on your computer. And so once you help people understand the value of, of using that tool, the tools themselves have become a lot, I would say, sort of more simplified, more um, more intuitive in some ways, as long as you start to understand what those, you know, the little hamburger or the three dots things are, right? There's certain certain weird um, navigational things that, that we've kind of, you have to get used to and you have to understand. Uh, I always use my parents as an example of when something isn't intuitive at all. It's because we didn't grow up with, you know, the sandwich um, navigation and the three dots were, that's where you'll find your settings and those kinds of things. So there's still assumptions that are made in the, in technology, but for sure, you know, talking to someone who is using also this technology in their personal life, perhaps um, more deeply than they would have in the past. ICQ is a great example. It was kind of like the, you know, the, the, text, the online text chat of the geek world, not everybody necessarily used it, but, you know, then AOL came along and had AOL rooms and chat and stuff. And now, you know, we've got digital messaging apps, which everybody is using in some way, depending on on the community they're in. They're just using a different one, um, whether it's Telegram, WhatsApp, texting itself, you know, WeChat, Viber, VContact, Facebook Messenger. I mean, the list goes on, right? So it's, the usability and the fact that they're using it makes it a lot easier to have the conversation. You just have to shift it into, okay, well, how do you use these tools in a professional context, in a secure context, in a service-related context, which is really less about the technology and more about the soft side of things um, and uh, and how you communicate differently um, using those tools than you might with a family member. But the tools themselves are typically already quite familiar for people. In comparing mobile data plans, uh, which is, a, I think, a crazy comparison to Canada, I pay $10 for 100 gigabytes a month versus in Canada, I think I'm paying $55 for like 20 gigs. I mean, that's, it's, yeah. it's such a wide difference. And it it's is. amazing to see people here use WhatsApp. Like They don't use SMS or text messages at all. It's all about WhatsApp. I guess that's why Facebook bought them. But, yeah, um, exactly. And it's one of the tools you mentioned in the uh, in the pre-arrival as well. What I didn't hear you mention, though, in terms of those tools, any kind of social media, does that come into play? It does. Yeah. Um, I'm I, Again, from a service perspective, uh, I tend to talk about like the digital messaging and video and stuff like that. Social media like Twitter, um, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and I guess in the background, a lot of those have messaging um, that people use. Uh, they may not use Instagram. I mean, I know that in, in some youth populations, I've, I've seen some research on, they're using Instagram in very hidden ways, but they use it as a, as a messaging tool amongst themselves. So um, so social media has a, has a place, but it's also about, um, you know, in a lot of cases, social media in the settlement and immigration is more of the, uh, the broadcast and outreach and marketing tool rather than the service tool. And in part, that's because they're um, they're not really secure messaging tools, right? So the moment you start having a uh, you know a more private interaction or trying to do an intake with somebody, you need to be able to shift to a secure tool. And even right now, forget the metadata stuff with Facebook, but WhatsApp is an encrypted um, tool, so you can use WhatsApp to to actually have an exchange, you know, uh, or you can use Signal or another messaging app or even iMessage to iMessage, right? Um, and you can have actual encrypted, secure conversations with people. So I like to kind of um, talk about social media as as a gateway 
uh, technology, but you want to, for a client interaction, you want to eventually move people over to more secure channels, for example. It's kind of like you can have the conversation at your at the front desk in your organization in the, in the waiting room, but as soon as that person starts talking about private stuff, you want to move them into an office where you can close the door and have a private conversation. So social media is where organizations can get the word out, share interesting work that they're doing, have high-level interactions with uh, with potential clients um, to provide information and some referral back into their organization or to other organizations. Um, but then you you want to you want to have in place a strategy of okay, well, if this is starting to become a conversation uh, or an intake, we got to shift it over to a different technology or an in-person experience or something like that. Um, so a lot of uh, a lot of organizations, though, this is part of the problem with technology without thinking about audiences sometimes a lot of people you know especially a few years ago were you know if you went to any settlement organization's website you'd probably see a twitter icon a facebook icon a linkedin icon and then maybe like a, an instagram icon or something like that and, and part of that was kind of like oh everybody's on facebook so we have to be on facebook everybody's on twitter so we have to be on twitter and there weren't a lot of strategic reasons necessarily why people would go there um, and certainly um, from the perspective of serving newcomers, they, they, those channels aren't necessarily the place other service providers, you know, other immigration lawyers, other people in the sector might be using some of them. Um, but, uh, but in a lot of cases, people started to say, well, putting efforts into these social media technologies, but we're not really getting a lot of return. And, and because the, the question wasn't, did they go and ask clients, are you on Twitter? Would you interact with us on Twitter? Is Twitter a place where you go and look for information? They were more just doing it because, it, you know, the, the mad gold rush, everybody else was going onto social media. So yeah, I see sure. those as you, you have to always be strategic in them. Like Facebook's a good example where your Facebook page is less important than probably what happens in the background with Messenger, where people are asking you questions and, and doing direct messaging and things like that. So the strategy for Facebook is, yeah, you've got to share and you might even need to do some ad buys in order to become visible. But the interactions you have, you know, are less focused on the likes and the reshares and the commenting and more on are people actually using that information to come and access services for you. And that makes total sense. It's it's easy to drink the Kool-Aid or it's easy to succumb to social pressure and saying, oh, it's what everybody's doing. So it must be cool. We have to do it. But you're right. Without a strategy, there's just there's no point. It actually can diminish your reputation if you are not constantly giving useful tools or useful information on these um, platforms. To my listeners, my guest Marco had a quick audio issue. We're back. He's got a better microphone, so he sounds even better. So we'll just pick up and just keep going. Uh, I'm curious to know, you mentioned CRM at one point, and of course my CRM is my my wheelhouse, my the, the, the thing I love talking about the most. So I'm curious to know how does the CRM play with all this interaction? Like what is it used for? What typical CRMs do you normally see with um, settlement organizations? Yeah, I mean, CRMs are still relatively in their infancy in our sector, I would say. Um, they're, they've, we're, we're talking about moving a sector from, from paper-based to Excel spreadsheets to uh, a reporting approach. 
Um, for example, there are some um, client tracking systems that their purpose is really just to report to the funder the information that the funder needs. So they're they're built and simplified for that process. And then you've got organizations, and again, Access Employment is another good example, that have invested, they've invested in, in specifically in Salesforce, but certainly um, I think it's Microsoft Azure. I'm not sure what their, their platform is, but it's basically it's, you know, for the big ones, it's Microsoft, it's, um, it's Salesforce, where they're not just using it for client reporting, right, for output, but they're really using it um, for client journey tracking, for intelligence gathering to find out, you know, okay, what do we, what can we truly understand? It goes back to that whole idea of understanding um, the newcomer and uh, and their needs uh, individually, but also in the aggregate, right? So, you know, the CRM that's used adequately can help see what are the, we're seeing a lot of people from this background, you know, from this country, um, you know, maybe we need to do some, some workshops or some, create some resources to support them differently. You know, you can do, let's say a postal code analysis. And all of a sudden you realize a lot of people are coming from this part of town. Should we go out and meet them in that part of town and start doing on-site kinds of um, services and support? And we're not seeing a lot of people from this part of town, but if we overlay that with demographic data that we can get from the city or from statistics, can we can see that that part of the town actually has a huge population of newcomers. So why aren't we reaching them kind of thing? So you see some organizations using them in, in quite sort of sophisticated ways, but I would say that those are very few, but it's emerging because, and again, it's uh, it's a relatively recent phenomenon. It's been spurred on by the pandemic as well around using data as a tool and data as uh, as an important way to do planning so that we really use data to make decisions or to help make decisions rather than just anecdotes and uh, in you know um the idea of instinct for example so um especially when organizations are serving large groups of clients you can only generate so much instinct and, and anecdote from those you know the data tells a different story so there's, there's a number of of projects that are happening in the sector that look at okay what do we need to be tracking and and not just for reporting to, to funders, but for our purposes as organizations, but also our purpose as community oriented or community anchored organizations? What can we understand about the community that can help us advocate on their behalf, build projects? And then the, the other side of that is, you know, all these organizations do significant referral into the community. And the typical story is I refer someone to an organization, they go and they do a new intake, they have to retell their story, and 80% of that information is, is the same information that they gave to me before I made the referral. And there's maybe 20% that's unique to the organization that I've referred them to, but they have to go through that whole new intake. So how can how can we build on the interoperability of technology so that I can shift the data with the client, with their permission, with their consent, all of the sort of, you know, cybersecurity, privacy kind of caveats in place so that that data goes with them to that organization and they have a system that can import that data so that they can review it, but they don't have to ask all of those questions again. They just have to ask that extra 20% that is relevant to the the, the service that they're going to provide to that person. And that is very, very, we know it's all, all we know all of these things are possible, but they're extremely in their infancy um, because for a number of reasons. One is we don't have that kind of data portability 
um, process. Uh, a lot of organizations, we don't have common intake forms and sort of standards. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you could probably look at every intake form and say 50% is the same stuff that every agency asks, but then it sort of starts to go off the rails in some ways. So, you know, can we have common standards or what are the APIs that can can help interact between whether it's Salesforce to Salesforce or Salesforce to you know custom build or something like that, so that that data can follow the the, the client and that together perhaps we can also use all of those all of that data from across these referrals to generate some of that sort of information, those insights, that intelligence about clients. So we we kind of know what's possible and we've learned more about what's possible over the last couple of years, but we're very much in our infancy when it comes to that in our sector. So there's a huge both learning curve, but also opportunity curve for that. Does some of these agencies need to report to a higher authority, like to government agencies and so forth? Or are these already government agencies? Forgive me for the ignorance, but I'm curious to know, like, no, that's okay. You know, how is that information? Because we talked about privacy, security, or I'm curious to know, you know how beyond the organization that's collecting the data, who else normally needs to see it? So in the case that I'm talking about, I'm talking about you know, government funded organizations or organizations that get grants. And so they are reporting to their funder. And sometimes it's multiple funders. That's the other thing as well, right? So um, there's federal funders, there's provincial, there's municipal, there's, um, there's you know, private philanthropic organizations as well. And so there's different kinds of reporting that they're doing to all. In the case of the federal funding, so the biggest funder of settlement, immigrant settlement organizations is IRCC, Immigrant Ref Refugee Citizenship Canada. And, uh, and you're literally, you know, getting someone's PR card number, which is their unique identifier. And, and that goes up to IRCC so that they can track that person as well for their, their data about where is this person accessing services and what types of services and things like that. Um, so there's a lot of, of that kind of reporting that happens. Um, and that's, again, more output reporting. So this person came, they access these services, you know, they come from these backgrounds, here are their demographics. Um, and we're, we're, you know, like like many service um, sectors, we're moving towards outcomes-based um, evaluation and reporting so that we're looking not just at this person came, they put their bum in a seat and they took this resume workshop, but, you know, did they get a useful job out of it? You know, what was the outcome of the service interaction? Um, and so in some, in a lot of ways, that's why I think a lot of organizations are trying to harness CRMs uh, and that kind of technology is to try to really gain that, that information to see that client journey and where they end up rather than just as a reporting tool to their funders. And then combining technology with process, uh, I know we spoke a bit before about this babycenter.com approach. If you could speak a bit about, you know, the, the, the benefiting or the using rather of technology and tools to guide an immigrant coming to, let's say, Canada, you know, from start to finish. Yeah, so the babycenter.com approach, um, babycenter.com is a website that where you can go, and it's an app as well, where you can go and um, you can, you know, a, a woman can put in their, their expected due date, and then they start getting uh, emails or messages once a week saying, okay, you're in your 34th week, this is probably how you're feeling, you should be thinking about X, Y, and Z, here are things you should be preparing, questions to ask your doctor or midwife, and then once the baby is delivered, you rejig the, the, the date, and it starts as the birth date, and then you start getting uh, weekly messages based on the child uh, and child development. So week one, oh, you you know you're probably freaking out. You just brought your child home from the hospital, or you know your your child is one week old. Um, here are some things to think about. And then you know 
six months later, here's developmental milestones you should be looking for. Here are questions that uh, that other parents are asking. Here's what our, our expert pediatricians think about. And, you know, we use that with, with our two sons. And I think it goes up to five years old, possibly even a bit longer. So like every week, and I, and I used to laugh about the accuracy of them, right? You know, you're seven months in, you still don't have a handle on being a parent. And you're asking these questions, oh, do I know what I'm doing? And then suddenly you get an email that says, you're probably wondering if you know what you're doing. You know, it was incredible. <laughs> Sometimes the, 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 uh, how prescient they were. That's a well-researched um, tool. Very well researched. And so what's behind it is a website um, with articles that are written by health professionals uh, and other parents, and then a discussion, a community section where parents are talking with each other. And, and some of the benefits of that were really interesting is that you'd have people commenting saying, you know what, 80% of the advice in this article really worked for me, but here's uh, the other 20%. Here's how we figured it out with our kid. And then someone else would say, oh, yeah. That reminds me of this. And all of a sudden, you're getting kind of the professional with the personal, right? So you're getting both sides of, 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 uh, of the story, which is really useful. And so in a lot of ways, right, um, the idea there is that child development is, is somewhat linear. Of course, it's not 100% for every child, but, you you know, there are certain, just like pregnancy, it's certain expectations, certain tests you'll take, certain visits to your healthcare professional, and similarly with a, with a child. And so I started to think, well, we 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 separate immigrant settlement into pre-arrival services and post-arrival services, but it's really just all about preparing for settlement kind of thing. So what could a babycenter.com approach look like for immigration? And it's okay. Um, because you do an application process and then you at some point you get a letter or a message that says you have been accepted um, to come to Canada. And then you sort of set your date, your landing date, which might be a few a few weeks to a few months out but what you can so having a kind of an approach where you would you would put that into a site um and say okay i'm landing on this day and i'm planning to 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 live in toronto and so getting messages then leading up to that moment saying here are the things you should be thinking about before you arrive here are the things you can do related to employment and health and education and housing and you know all of the the, the sort of topic areas and categories that uh, that cover um, settlement immigration and settlement which is literally everything you can think about when it comes to to uh, to living and then on the day they land let's say they land on a different day once again, they rejig that date and they say, "Okay, now you're in Canada. Here are the here are the things you should do in your first week." You know, and there's guides out there, right? This is not again not new uh, content or ideas, but there are literally things called first days guides or your first month in Canada or something like that. And again, all along the way, there's a lot of you know. So you might want to you're thinking about enrolling your children in school. Okay, well, you know, each province has their own education system, so you need to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and for I'm not sure how long, but for a certain period of time, getting that information to people um, about their settlement journey and where there are useful resources, but also connecting them to other newcomers so that they can have these conversations amongst each other. And there's a couple of things with these. None of this is new. It's just not amalgamated, right? There's a, There are tons of immigration portals out there where you can get this kind of information. So like I said earlier, I worked on settlement.org. It still exists. It's the post-arrival um, uh, website for newcomers coming to Ontario. And the idea is if you have questions about settlement, there are 
answers there. So the content already exists. It would just need to be rejigged in a new format. Um, newcomer networks exist everywhere, both in person as well as online, and increasingly on these messaging apps like WhatsApp and, and WeChat and Facebook Messenger and things like that. And they're increasingly private. Um, so it's a small group of newcomers speaking to each other. And the value of opening that up could be really interesting so that newcomers could support each other and say, well, that advice about getting a job is interesting, but let me tell you about what worked for me. You know, 80% of that advice worked. And then here's the last 20% that helped me get a job and not just any job, but a job in my field and my, you know, recognize my skill set and things like that. So the idea is that there's a certain linearity to settlement and immigration as well. Um, there's also a huge issue with information and service gaps for newcomers. So all of the research over, over the last 20 years has told us that only about between 30 to 50% of newcomers access services um, when they are, before they arrive or when they arrive. But when you survey newcomers, um, more of them would access information and services if they knew about them. So there's a problem of knowing about them. Something, uh, a service like this, for example, could be, the beginnings of it could be at the point that you, you know, get the approval as an immigrant, you're automatically enrolled into this service and you start getting messages. Now you can exit that, you can, you can unsubscribe, but theoretically that starts to give information to people who may not have even thought of where they should go for information or that they need this information. So that's serendipity once again of, you know, I don't know what I don't know about enrolling my child in school in, in, uh, in Toronto. Could a tool like this help them at least get those those initial starting points? Um, and could we reach more people with information so that their settlement journey wouldn't be as frustrating? For example, they'd get their questions answered earlier. They'd get connected to uh, information resources and service providers earlier if they needed them. But at the very least, they'd get a regular weekly kind of message that helps them on their journey, basically. Love it. I think it's a fantastic approach and a and fantastic use of the tool. I imagine there's multiple journeys based on you know, whether you're coming alone or coming with a partner, coming with a partner and children, you know, recommendations and and tools and, and um, places to investigate and explore and, and take advantage of in terms of services offered by um, the government and various other agencies. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of potential and it also can help with some of the duplication, like every agency, every service provider right now here's is writing an article about how to write a resume, how to find a job. And so, you, you know, you can look at this as a content amalgamation as well, where, um, where a lot of that kind of sort of generic information can be created and shared. And then the local organizations can focus more on the local context, right? It's kind of like that that CRM thing where if 80% of the data goes with the person, well, okay, I can ask them the last 20% of the questions. Well, if how to how to find a job is basically the same process no matter where you land in Canada, okay, but I can tell you in Toronto, what are some of the, I can give you the last 20% of that information. So how do you find a job in Toronto based on those generic kind of approaches to job finding? Here's our labor market situation. Here are the big employers, you know, things like that. And then in these agencies, instead of, having to, you know, write the same stuff, they could focus on the, the, they could localize that knowledge more. So looking toward the future then, where would you like to see some of these settlement organizations be in the next few years? Is it a, a journey that never ends or is there a, a, a place in the future that you can visualize to say, all right, you guys are on the right track. You're the, the platinum standard or whatever that, you know, you guys are in great hands. You don't need any further assistance. Um, and if that does exist, what would that look like? 
So it's definitely a journey that never ends because I think what we've learned with technology is that it's always changing. But one of the things that um, that I've been lucky enough to be part of is in some research where an advocacy in the sector and for the for funders around sort of the issues, the challenges and the opportunities related to digital transformation. And one of the things that we've talked about is creating baselines, baselines in infrastructure, baselines in competency, baselines in organizational and individual capacity, as well as baselines in, in uh, investment or funding models and things like that. So that, you know, what I would love to see is that, you know, in a few years, no matter what organization is being funded, they have a digital inclusion approach. They have competencies in all areas like cybersecurity. So you know if you're going to access online services with them, it's secure, it's encrypted when it needs to be. You know, every uh, frontline worker has the same kind of set of data literacy and data capabilities. Managers understand how to manage uh, hybrid and digital environments. There's ongoing knowledge sharing and mobilization through the sector so that people are sharing what's working, new models, new innovations that others might be able to replicate or at least learn from, and uh, adequate and realistic and flexible funding models. And I say adequate because technology is not something you can invest in just once, right? It's a, it, it, you know, there's some big investments initially, but it has to be maintained and you have your, your things are evolving, new tools are coming out and things like that. So there's certainly a lot of work that still needs to be done. And, and I think, it, again, it, it'll never end, right? You know, seven years ago, our sector wasn't using WhatsApp. It took a Syrian refugee influx, you know, two years ago, Many people had never heard of Zoom before. Now it's in, an indispensable tool in our work. That'll continue to change and evolve over time. And so we need to be able to be responsive to those uh, to those changes, especially as they relate to what, are, what, what newcomers are using. So that whole sort of data literacy as well around understanding our communities and newcomers, not just around technology, but also just in terms of their preferences and their needs is, is something that just never ends. It's something we can't, we have to built in and bake in and, and make it part of our baseline approaches. Makes sense. Marco, this has been great. Where can people find more about you online and perhaps get in touch if they have any follow-up questions? Sure. So my, my consulting website is marcopolis.org. So that's M-A-R-C-O-P-O-L-I-S.org. And I have a, a website called Knowledge Mobilization for Settlement, which is KM and then the number 4S.ca, where I try to share what I'm learning and finding. Uh, and please connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, that's the my network of choice where I'm having really interesting conversations with people all the time when it comes to these uh, these topics. That's awesome. And we'll have those links in the show notes below. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a fun conversation. I hope it's useful to someone out there. <laughs> yeah, please. And let us know if, if, if listeners have learned something, if they have any feedback, it'd be great to hear from you either to myself or to Marco. Thanks very much, Alex. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. That's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again uh, in the next Agents of Nonprofit.